everybody. Thanks for joining us for this first episode of Season 2 of A Journey Through Aussie Pop. If you've listened before, you'll know I'm Gavin Scott from pop music website chartbeats.com.au and this is Robbie Molinari, who hosts Turn the Beat Around on Joy 94.9 in Melbourne. Welcome back, Robbie. Hey, Gavin. Happy New Year. Is is it too late to say that? Anyhow, it's good to be back for Season 2. And um, a big shout-out to all our listeners and subscribers who have been downloading and streaming over the summer break. I'm certainly looking forward to bringing everybody some more stories about Australia's pop music history. Yes, once again, we'll be speaking to the artists behind some of the biggest homegrown hits of the 80s, 90s and 2000s. Homegrown pop hits, I should say. And to kick us off for season two, we have a couple of episodes that have been months in the making as we spoke to seven, that's right, seven, of the original members of a much-loved late 80s, early 90s band. And we learned some things that came as a surprise to me. There's certainly a lot to hear, so let's get stuck into the story of The Shantuzis, the eight-piece Melbourne band who went from nightclub performances to the charts with songs like this one. The classic lineup of the Shantuzis consisted of singers Eve von Bibra, Ali Fowler, Angie Labazetta, and Toddy Goldsmith. Then there was drummer David Rain, bassist Brett Goldsmith, keyboard player Scott Griffiths, and the late Frank McCoy on guitar. And our tale really begins with the Goldsmiths brother and sister Brett and Totty, whose father Brian was an important figure on the Melbourne nightclub scene and whose mother, Rona, was the sister of Olivia Newton-John. So let's let Totty and Brett, with a little help from David, Ellie and Scott, tell the story of how the Shantuzis came to be in 1986. And we're also going to hear about a ninth member of the band, Robin Nissen. We had friends of friends and Eve had been dating my brother and Ali I had met through another friend I met doing a TV show and Angie was a friend of Robin. So we used to sit around and eat cheese and drink cheap champagne and we listened to 50s and 60s songs and loved them and wanted to, um, you know, we picked harmonies, we'd sit around doing it. So then my brother Brett, who lived next door, we lived on a kind of, at the books, our father was quite an eccentric man, and he wanted to keep his adult children around him and he bought this old 1910 house that he gave us all like, well, apartment block. It was an old apartment block. And he took the main house and gave us apartments so we all lived in this place and he owned nightclubs. So the environment was kind of, it wasn't your normal way to grow up, I'll just put it that way. You know, we'd lived in the tops of pubs and the tops of restaurants and moved around a lot. So it was a quirky life anyway. So Brett is next door. He listens to us singing. I remember well David and I walking past and there were Tot and four other girls, the Shantuzi girls and a girl called Robin Nissen, who was a great singer but never, she's lasted about three gigs. They were drinking wine and singing in the kitchen and it was kind of cute and it sounded good. One of my closest mates was Brett. And he and I just hung out together the whole time. And um, Brian was the nightclub king of Melbourne. And we'd always been in the nightclubs. And, you know, we'd, I, would, I would work on the front door of the nightclub if I wasn't doing something else. His old man was like that. He said, you need a job. i got hundreds of jobs. You want to pull beers? And I remember being around at Brett's one, one night and Tot was having a party with her girlfriends next door. And I remember Brett and I having a listen going, this is not bad. We should do something about it. 
we just got together and we thought we'd have a bit of a sing. And and then fairly early on into it, we decided, oh, let's do a theatre show, like more of a cabaret kind of thing. And we we talked about maybe filming like a big band and then we'd play behind a screen of a big band playing all the songs and then the five of us would be up the front. So we were looking at more of a a theatrical sort of cabaret kind of thing. And then Brett popped in to see Totty one day and he went, no, you don't want to do that. You want a real band. You want a band. And so David and I went in and said, well, let's play a couple of songs. So I think I got a guitar or a piano and David sat down and we worked out a few songs and then, I think I said, let's put a band together. And that's exactly what we did. We never imagined anything. It was literally, we all thought it was a fun thing to do, fun way to hang out. There was no intention anywhere. My brother and sister always told me I had a shit voice. And every time I sang, they'd tell me to shut up. (laughs) So I'm just really attracted to fun and I'm a team player. So I love doing things with people. And that just seemed like fun. So Brett, you know, saying that, it was like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So we just went, okay, well, I played, he played bass, I played drums. We knew other players. We thought, let's put a band together. And our original idea was to do it like the Andrews sisters. You know, all the girls were going to dress up similarly and we were going to be like the, the backing band. We worked out a few songs with the girls. I don't remember what. I think they were 50s and 60s covers we were doing. We obviously had no, so we hadn't never written a song at that point. And we needed a guitar player that looked cool. That was the first priority back then. But who also knew that era of music, the, the rockabilly in the 50s music, which the girls were singing. That was the sort of music they were, they were into. He said, leave it with me. I'll go away and see if I can rustle up some musicians. Then Brett found Frank McCoy, the beautiful Frank McCoy from The Real McCoys, which was a rockabilly band. Frank had also played with many bands. He was you know, very well known on the Melbourne music scene. We found Frank, which was an absolute gem because he was just not only one of the the best people I ever met, but a brilliant rockabilly guitar player and ended up being a great pop guitar player. Scott, we were looking for a keyboard player and we needed somebody that was really, quite honestly, probably a better musician than musicians that we were at the time. And he's a brilliant musician and he came in and he loved it. Um, He sort of helped us really musically put it all together and he was wonderful in the studio as well. I can remember meeting Brett Goldsmith. We were in a restaurant. We bumped into each other. He was going up to the snow uh, with a band and needed a keyboard player and then asked me and I went up. I think it was after that that they had the idea of starting the band and I had just played with them during that gig. I'd sort of come out of the classical scene and had just played in a bunch of bands really. But I don't think I was particularly experienced, you know, back then. I think Chantries is was a bit of a learning curve, actually being in a working band and going on the road. And so we got together in, in Brett's house and we started to put together some songs. And then we decided we needed really a goal to work towards. Otherwise, we'd never get out of Brett's place. <laughs> Although many of the band members knew each other, Angie was the new kid on the block and she was introduced to the others by Robin. Here's Angie to talk about meeting the rest of the Shantuzis. My memory of just the first encounter was really weird because I was doing something completely different. I was modelling at the time. I didn't know anybody. 
I was introduced to one of the girls and she introduced me to Totty and we went to Totty's house and everybody was already there and established, you know, they all knew each other. And I was just this ring in from out of town. And I just, I remember feeling quite intimidated by them all because they were all so fabulous and, you know, flamboyant. And I was just a little girl from the burbs. But somehow I had that feeling, that overarching feeling in that, in that moment that I was so, I had so landed where I needed to be. There was champagne. There was, it was all, always celebratory. You know, it was, there was always an occasion and everybody was always, you know, it was the goldsmiths and they didn't do anything in half measures. It was always flamboyant and full on. And, and let's just clarify, I was not a singer. Like that was not my trajectory. So I was thinking about other things. It, it was one of those things I kind of always wanted to do, but secretly, and I hadn't actually ever articulated that to anybody else. So when the occasion arose for us to actually form the band and, and you know, perform, it was supposed to be a one-off. And so it took us all by surprise that it ended up being like a 10-year career or however long we, we lasted. As many of you will know, the band's first official gig was for Totty's 24th birthday at one of the nightclubs owned by her dad, Brian. It was quite a party, hey, Robbie? Yeah, I bet it was. I bet the bubbles were flowing. Armed with their covers of 50s and 60s tunes and all decked out to look the part, the Shantuzies were born. Let's hear some memories from that night and how it led to ongoing work around Melbourne. So Totty's birthday was coming up and Totty and Brett's father, Brian owned the underground nightclub. So Tot went to Brian and said, what if I, you know, could I have a big birthday party at the underground and could we play? And he went, sure, no worries. So then we had a date to work towards. So we pulled it together, rehearsing at the underground that was, you know, our dad's club. And well, we rehearsed at home first and then we were running around making outfits and the boys are getting glasses and suits and we we're getting sparkly miniskirts, sequence miniskirts. So then we got onto Rose Chong to get the outfits together. We went with black sequins. We made silk, white silk covers for all the amps and all the musical instruments that we wanted just to cover. So it was basically the boys were in white um, shirts with the black ties and, you know, black pants. They looked so handsome. And didn't they have the Buddy Holly glasses? I think they had Buddy, yeah, Buddy Holly yeah. glasses. And Robin, who owned a costume jewellery shop, so she decked us all out in fabulous, you know, jewellery and it was an extravaganza. And we invited about a 1,000 of our closest friends. <laughs> For me, it went really quickly. I was really nervous, but I loved it. It was great fun. And we, and we kind of sort of, I don't know, we, we fell into um, like our sort of roles that we now, you know, magnified by 10,000. I remember it clearly, but there was just no trepidation. There was no fear. There was no, like, I didn't have any anxiety. That was just something you did, you know, like, I think we, re I can't even remember how long we rehearsed for, but we were also sassy. As far as our music credibility went, well, that was dubious, but, you know, we just kind of had that thing where there was a bit of magic between us all in terms of our performance and just relating to each other. And the energy that that created was entertainment. It takes balls to do what we did and to be fearless. Like, I'm not like that now, but I sure as hell was then. And it was really well received. It was lovely to sort of go, oh, wow. And in that, on that sort of night, I think we all sort of thought maybe this could be something. 
Yeah. Like, I don't think we had any kind of preconceived ideas about it, but then once on stage and feeling the the audience and the reaction and getting that engagement, we sort of like, oh, right, this is actually this is quite good. And it went gangbusters. Mike, Dad, everyone loved it, and there were still five of us. Robin was still in at the time, and Dad offered us a residency. And he also named the band because he had been watching an old movie on television and it was about some French singers back in the 40s, 40s or 50s, and it was called The Society Chanteurs. And he said, why don't you call yourself The Society Chanteuses? And we dropped The Society and kept The Chanteuses because it means female singer, you know, what Chanteuse does. So uh, there we were and suddenly we had, I think it was a Thursday night residency. He said, all right, I'll give you a residency for six weeks. And so in that time, that's when um, we were really lucky. Brad Robinson, somewhere in those first sort of few weeks, came on board as our manager, Brad Robinson from Australian Crawl. Right. And I remember one night Bob Starkey, who had a club in Collingwood called The Club, came down to see us and he said, I'll give you Friday nights at The Club for a month. I didn't think this could be something. And it was when... um it went nuts and then Brad came along and said, Brian, I'm going to manage you. We're going to, you know, make this something. We all just went, yeah, let's do it. We were doing um, Be My Baby and Fever and a lot of those sort of early girl songs. And I think at that point I didn't see where it was going to head. It was just that was fun. We were trying to learn the songs and people seemed to like it. And at that point I don't know if there was a sort of longer-term plan to do anything more than that. I think they were pretty excited just to be doing that, really. You know, David had played drums in another band. Frank, obviously, had played a fair bit of guitar. I don't know that the four girls had done that much, you know, public singing. I got the feeling Eve had, but they, you know, and they were all good. So I think that was pretty exciting, just the idea of having a band. And within a week, it was full house. It was absolutely packed. We'd, there was some vibe going around that these kids were playing this, this sort of 50s music. 60s music and they would look cool and it was in this nightclub and it was packed. Day one, whenever we played, it was just huge. We just had that, you know, it was, I guess it was obvious. We you know, got those four, four girls out the front, you know. It was sort of, there wasn't anyone really doing that at the time in Australia and uh, we just, every time we played, we would, the joint would be jam-packed. So what did happen to that ninth original member, Robin? And why did she leave? Eve, Ali and Angie explain. Because she did run a business and that was like a very big part of her life and she was about to get married and all sorts of things. I think it was sort of she was either she had to make that decision of, oh, God, am I doing this or am I? It was very difficult for her. And I know because she, she had a great voice. And she was a wonderful person. She still is a wonderful person. Yeah, I know that was a tricky decision for her at the time. We were now starting to work like three to four gigs a week. We got a gig, a couple of gigs up in the snow at Falls Creek. They were starting to take us out of town a bit. And that it started to become harder and harder for her. Things moved quite quickly. I think Robin actually was the founder of the Chantuzis and unfortunately she came from a background that was, it just wasn't part of their culture and they weren't, and she had a lot of pressure from her family to not, you know, take it seriously. And I think the pressure was too great and she had to 
she had to leave. Uh, sadly, because I think that was hard for her. And it was also hard for us because we loved her. I guess it was inevitable. As the Chantuzis made a name for themselves on the live circuit, they attracted the attention of the music industry. The group was gaining momentum, and along the way they gained management, Brad Robinson, a record company, Mushroom Records, and a producer, David Courtney. Although no one can quite remember in which order they came into the picture. And although the focus had originally been on performing gigs, the band would now make the transition to recording and releasing music. Let's hear about that. David Courtney, who had produced and written a lot of stuff with um, Leo Sayer, he had rocked into town with the song Witch Queen in his back pocket, uh, I guess wanting to do a, a, a sort of a dance treatment similar to Bananarama and Venus. And he'd gone to Mushroom and he'd said, do you have an act that this might suit? Someone in Mushroom said, look, I haven't seen them, but there's a band playing at the underground on Thursday nights that's um, been garnering a little bit of interest around town. It's five girls, four guys. So he came down and um, saw us and then went back to much unbeknownst to us. I don't even think we knew that he was there or maybe no, we did. I don't think we did. And then he went back to Mushroom and said, um, yeah, they're perfect. That's that's what we want. David Courtney said, if you can get a record deal to do a single, I have the song. So we just rang, I think Tot and I or David and I rang up Michael at Mushroom and said, look, if you give us 10 grand, which is what we needed to go to Metropolis and record it and pay for the producer and make a record. These were the days where money wasn't so tight. And so he writes a cheque and in we go and record it. And the next thing we're doing a film clip and the next thing our lives changed. Dinsky was knocking on the door and Frank Stavala, who ran, ran Premier, they were all going, come on, let's do this. And so we just knew it was just going to go. You never know when you record something whether that's going to be accepted, but... It was logical that we were going to get a um, – because back then, you know, you had to – it was a different thing. You had to prove yourself live before you got a record deal. They'd only come come looking at you or they'd only be interested in you if you were proving yourself in the in the, in the venues, in the clubs. Then they go, oh, well, there's a, the crowd loves these guys. We should record them. And so, yeah, it was quite logical. We always thought that we'd make a record. It seemed like a sort of natural progression – of something that was yeah kind of fun, but we we were like, oh, okay, well, that comes next. Or it was like one foot in front of the next and, you know, away we went. It was kind of like a, yeah, a natural progression. And we were all very excited about, you know, like we sort of said, oh, let's record this because, you know, we'll just have it for our grandchildren when, you know, <laughs> we didn't think it was going to be any more than just the one song. As we've heard, Witch Queen was suggested to the band as a track that might work as their debut single. Originally recorded by Redbone as The Witch Queen of New Orleans, the song reached number 17 on the Australian chart in 1972. Here's that original version. And here's the Shantuzzi's version, which was released in January 1987. He peaked at number four and spent 14 weeks in the ARIA Top 50 Singles Chart. Of 
you spent any time in Australia in the second half of 1986, you would have been very familiar with this track, which as we heard was an obvious inspiration for the Chantuzzi's version of Witch Queen. Venus by Bananarama. That song spent seven weeks at number one in Australia and was produced by British hitmakers Stock Aitken and Waterman. Together they took the 1970 chart topper by Shocking Blue and made it a hit all over again. There are a number of similarities between Venus and Witch Queen. Both originals were hits in the early 70s, both remakes were performed by 80s groups with female vocalists, and both of them had a high energy beat. Witch Queen was, essentially, Australia's answer to Venus, although of course the idea came from a British producer. The Australian music scene didn't normally produce anything like this. Look, we certainly needed it. Most of the pop dominating the charts was coming out of America or the UK. And even though Witch Queen was, let's say, motivated by Bananarama's Venus, high energy cover versions were rife in the late 80s. You know, we had Kim Wilde doing You Keep Me Hanging On, Communards doing Don't Leave Me This Way. So I think the Chantuzzi's and Witch Queen came at exactly the right time. Plus, it was a great record. Let's go back to the band and hear about recording, releasing, and the success of Witch Queen. The next thing, we're in the studio recording Witch Queen and still at that stage it was just ah oh, this is sort of new I don't know that there was a long-term plan and I think that was my one of my first times in a recording studio you know in those days you would spend a lot of time choosing your drum sounds and choosing your bass sounds and then we had that sort of the bass the groove going and then I guess because I could play I was working with David Courtney, I remember sort of doubling string lines and finding keyboard sounds and different things. We were just constructing it. And then, yeah, it was like one, <laughs> like 14 hour day. We'd started early and finished like four o'clock in the morning. I remember just coming out of there so exhausted and thinking, isn't it great that I don't have to listen to that song for a little while and put my head on the pillow and just heard the loudest thing ever of Witch Queen. <laughs> and I went, oh, no. I was the player because in those days, you know, there were no drums. I don't think it was that much guitar. So we had the singers, obviously the girls. We got in the guys who could sing that low part. But I think everything else, all the bass lines and all of the other parts, that was sort of David Courtney and me because it was that's how it worked in those days, just a room full of keyboards. It was an opportunity that we had to take. We didn't have any original songs. This was a song that was a cover, and it was a cover from the early 70s. So it was a fair while, you know, it was an old cover at that time. I didn't mind it, but he let me he let me program it on my little Roland MC500. You know, I was really into programming. And so he let me record, program the beats and turn it into an electronic type of almost disco tune. Then I was excited to get into a real studio. I mean, I, I had eight tracks and synths and mic you know i was really into recording at that time but this was a way to get into a big studio and to learn how to program i, I really loved the red bone version of it david courtney made it much more pop and you know he had his finger on the pulse of what was working at the time and i because i had no experience in the music industry i had no opinion because i didn't have anything to base it on i wasn't a musician i wasn't a singer i didn't understand the industry and so for me, it was just literally, you know, going along with it. So, and uh, then we're in the studio and that, you know, when you, we would, I was 24 and I think Ali was 24, Angie was 25 and Eve was 19. I think the boys were more driven because they were musicians. 
I think I'd done a bit of voiceover work in the acting thing, but that's, you know, I'd been in a studio environment before, but not singing. And I remember being nurtured through that and quite happily, we, you know, we were just so excited to be there. It was an easy thing for us to all just band together. We were directed as, as closely as possible. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I remember it being a lot of fun. The original band was a kind of fun thing. And then I think when we did that, it's like, oh, well, this could turn it into something that had a lot more potential, I suppose. And I was quite a fan of, of Dead or Alive and that the new sound with the new drum machine. And, um, yeah, so I was pretty excited about that. I was thinking it sounded pretty good, but, you know, what did I know? It sort of actually helped move us into a, a direction. As much as we loved doing the 50s and 60s songs and we were really enjoying it and, and putting our own spin on that, I don't think that's something that we wanted to necessarily do forever. I never liked it. The, the music that we decided to play was not kind of really what I, the sort of stuff that I would listen to, but it was logical for that band. And then we had the film clip on location. We were up at Monsalvat. It, it all went really smooth. The shoot was really smooth. I remember it all just sort of playing out really easy. The dynamic within the band was really healthy at that time. And so everybody was really putting in their best. And I think the cliff is 80s as it is, it still holds up. It's still, you know, fabulous. It's so over the top. <laughs> I just could not believe how disgusting I looked. They, because they just did the 80s makeup, the blue eye, the red lipstick. I could never wear red lipstick. This huge hair and I was quite, you know, I was chubby at the time. So I just looked like three times the size. And if I was the person I am now with experience, I'd go, well, I don't really want to wear that. My hair doesn't look good like that. But at the time, you just can't believe that anyone even gives a rat's about what you're doing. So, you know, you go along with it. It's just that vulnerability. And suddenly everything took off and then we're being played on the radio. And we, I remember vividly the first time that we were played on the radio, we're all standing around together and we were literally jumping up and down. Like we couldn't believe that Witch Queen had been played on the radio. And then on one of the radio stations, there was the top eight at eight and people rang in to vote. Well, that was fun. I do remember that being <laughs> kind of exciting. And so we would all be frantically ringing and every, I mean, everyone did that. You know, it wasn't just us. That's sort of what you did. You rang in and you got your song and. And you put on a, you put on a different voice. Oh, hi. Yeah. I want the uh, Shantuzis, um, Witch Queen. And then you go, oh, hi, I want the uh, Shantuzis, Witch Queen. You just do all the different voices. That's yeah. what we used to all did. It was so exciting and so fun. I do remember that, the sitting around the radio and, and hearing um, Witch Queen going to number four, and that was a bit of a surreal, exciting moment. I think that was really the point where, where we went, ah, this is, it's all suddenly gotten real. The future's just changed. It felt great. We were, I mean, we were very lucky. We mushroom put a lot of work into it. Um, it felt great. One minute we were, you know, playing in my, in my dad's club for free, not making any money. And the next minute we were booked doing, you know, 10 shows a week. Literally, I can't remember the time frame, but it was literally within four or six weeks. The thing just took off. But I'm sure lots of bands that have kind of pockets experience that feeling of being nowhere and then all of a sudden you're filling rooms. So it was a good feeling, you know. The next thing, we're flying all over the country and staying in flash hotels and doing signings in department stores and everywhere and it suddenly just went nuts and especially for David Rain. Mike, he was the hot sexy guy of the show and the girls were almost beating down the doors. I remember doing really huge gigs and they were screaming his name. 
which Queen had worked so well that it was decided to repeat the formula for a second single. Great idea, right, Robbie? <laughs> yeah, sure, great idea. Unfortunately, their choice of cover version for the follow-up to Witch Queen was a song that another very different Australian band had earmarked to record and release at exactly the same time. Around since 1982, the Party Boys were essentially a covers band, but their rotating roster of members were much more high-profile than your average RSL outfit. You know, we're talking about previous vocalists like James Rain, Richard Clapton, Angry Anderson, while there was a who's who of Aussie rock musicians who spent time in the band. There had been some singles, but no hit. By 1987, John Swanee Swan was out front and a new, more commercially successful era began for the band, thanks to a remake of He's Gonna Step On You by John Congas. Let's listen to the original, the Party Boys remake and the Chantuzzi's version, since they also decided to cover He's Gonna Step On You again. Okay, Gavin, what side of the he's going to step on you again fence are you on? Shantuzis, party boys, Shantuzis, party boys? Uh, Shantuzis. Yes, me too. All right, so the Party Boys version, of course, did win the race. It reached number one in August of 1987 and remained at the top spot for two weeks. The Shantuzis version, unfortunately, only reached number 36. And the story behind how the battle of the cover versions went down is pretty interesting. Let's go back to the band and listen to that story. I, it was a big mistake, I thought, at the time, and I, I've argued against it, to release another cover as the second song. And thankfully it got buried because the Party Boys did the same thing. And, and my brother was the first singer with the Party Boys. He didn't sing in, in, in that incarnation. But um, So I knew those Party Boys guys. In fact, when I moved to Sydney to do Sweet and Sour, I was actually living with Kevin Borich, and he was the guitar player there. So it was funny to have this kind of girly pop band and these rock guys playing the same, releasing the same song at the same time. And I was kind of glad that ours got buried. No, oh, it wasn't, certainly wasn't for me. I didn't like, I don't think most of it, I don't know how many of us liked the song. I certainly didn't like the song. And I didn't like the recording. I didn't like the way we recorded it. I think David Courtney was the producer again. And it was just unfortunate that um, the Party Boys did it. Not for them, theirs did really well. I just remember that, both songs were charting at the same time. We knew this version was being recorded in the studio at the same time as we were recording our version. It was ridiculous. It was like there were two record companies vying for the same song of two totally opposite acts. I felt that it was then a, a competition between the record companies because we had another song that we thought we might like to do. We were thinking of the George McRae, Come take me in your arms, right, baby. I think that would have been great. We could have done a really cool version, yeah. But they went, no, 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 we're going to get it out before the party boys, and, uh, and we didn't. We were somewhere recording it, and I remember Brad coming into the studio and saying, look, I've heard the party boys are about to go into the studio and record. And we were like, well, that's all right. We're in front of them at the moment. We've finished recording the song. We're shooting the clip next week. 
They're just about to go into the studio. So we're actually in front of them. So we kept moving at a million miles an hour to get everything done so that as long as we could hit before them, we had a, a better chance. And we did the clip. We did the photo shoot for the cover. And then there was some weird hold up, this thing where they went, oh, I'm really sorry. It was, I remember some strange story like they've dropped the master or the master's drop, been dropped in the acetate or something. I don't know, some mad story that held us up. And the party boys ended up coming out about three weeks before us. I'm not usually a conspiracy theorist, but somewhere in there Go I on. went, oh, did Sony pay off Mushroom to, you know, hold it back or something? I don't know. I always felt like we were in front. What happened? And then, of course, the next thing, the Party Boys had, had released the song just ahead of us, you know, which was, uh, you put quite a lot of work into those things, so that was a bit sad. Initially, you're wondering which one is going to work, and then I distinctly remember at some point saying, we've lost that battle. I think it would have been interesting to see what would have happened had we got out three weeks before them, or even if they'd both been dropped on the same day, but um, it was already, they'd cemented it a bit more, you know, three weeks <laughs> worth of cementing as their song rather than ours, if that makes sense. For me at the time, it seemed like the ultimate battle of Aussie pub rock and Aussie pop, and the latter didn't get anywhere near the support from the local music industry as the former did at that time. We asked the Chantuzis if they felt pigeonholed as a pop act and looked down upon by music snobs, and here's what they had to say. Uh, I think the fans loved us more than the industry. The industry people loved us as people. I don't think there was an enormous amount of respect I think they knew they could see that we filled a gap and it was um, very female-driven, but I think within the industry, if we'd written Witch Queen, you know, or Step On You Again or something, I think there would have been more credit. Between Australian Crawl and the Chanteuses, I played in a couple of inner-city Melbourne bands, and we were in that area that was, you know, destined to go nowhere, but, geez, we had credibility, you know, with that inner-city crowd. You go, So it was really nice eventually to... Um, to have one that just went nuts. We came off the television and so on, and people were just going, they're not serious. You're just trading in on your um, – and I think Toddy and Ali copped that a lot. You know, you're just trading in on your TV career, and I copped it as well. People didn't realise that I'd, be, I'd played quite a bit previously, I guess. Back then you do all these big festivals, all these big events, you know, with, uh, with a whole lineup of other bands, and, you know, you'd be – Going in there, and, and these people would be, they would just not even look your way if you weren't worth your salt. You know, we would go on and we'd blow these guys away because we had, we'd played and played and played and played. We were as tight as hell. And we get up on a big stage and we could, the girls would just blow a big audience away and we could play. And all these other bands that were standing there going, you better prove yourself to us, we're going, hey, good on you. So we, we handled that. Uh, situation by being good, by, you know, really doing it professionally and uh, pulling it off. We were very acutely aware of our, our limitations, I guess. And no one pretended to be anything but what we were. Like we had no illusions about that. We were on stage and our, our ethos was, let's go out and give them a fucking good time and just have the best fun we can have. We played to a lot of packed houses for a long time. And I do recall a lot of our tour managers rocking up to a, a venue and just going, far out, guys. You know, like, this is amazing. This line down the two blocks is a really 
cool thing. It doesn't happen to all bands. We took ourselves seriously in terms of how much entertainment we could deliver. Yeah, I don't think there was any real kind of, ooh, we're finding it difficult because we're not. I mean, a lot of our friends, like we were very close with James Rain and, and a lot of those guys who, you know, co-wrote a lot of songs with us for our albums and things. And I don't know even if I necessarily thought, oh, yes, we're a pop band. I just sort of thought, this is what we do. This is the music that's coming out. Yeah, it, it didn't feel girly to us no. or or bubblegummy or, you know, some of the things that you might associate with a female pop group. You know what I mean? It didn't it didn't feel like that to us. It might have maybe to some people looked a bit like that, but it certainly didn't feel like that to us. And, you know, when we played all the grungy pubs, all the pubs around Australia, we played the pub rock scene. Yeah. It wasn't like we were protected from that or anything because we were girls or excluded. But we looked at ourselves, believe it or not, as a band because we were a band. We had real players and we were playing our instruments and we were playing them well and we were filling houses and doing really well and touring and we had four girls that sang. So we didn't consider ourselves to be a kind of production house type of arrangement. We felt we were more control of what we were doing. And, and in fact, we were in most control of what we were doing, not 100%, but 90%. Due to the lack of success with He's Gonna Step On You Again, it was back to the drawing board. The Shantuzis made a unanimous decision to move away from cover versions and to start recording original material. Even Brett stepped up to be the band's chief songwriters and they had a fair bit of input from David's brother James and on one track, Simon Hussey. Let's hear about how that songwriting process unfolded. Even though even Brett had been kind of dabbling or working on things, they hadn't really, you know, had it all together put their heads down and gone for it. So that was when they took a bit of time off and that's probably why there's that gap there. I think Michael came to me and said, right, we're going to make an album. You've had two singles. One, one's done really well. You're actually an established touring act on our roster now. He says, Brett, if you don't write the songs or if, if, the, if the band doesn't write the songs, I'm going to have to find other covers for you or get other writers to write your songs. And uh, that was the impetus for me to become a songwriter. Between touring, I, for one, would just basically just spend every day in my studio playing and writing bits and coming up with ideas and coming up with songs. Brett had a studio, so he was sort of all set up and ready to go. Like he, he'd been doing that. He'd been writing with James Rain and David and, and other people. So, yeah, he and I just, it kind of fell, I mean, from what I remember, it was very natural just, we fell into doing that together and he wrote music and I wrote melody and words and that was how it rolled. Yeah, yeah, he's great. She's a great writer and a great singer. You know, her version of Want to Be Up is awesome. I mean, she sang the demo and Eve was just a good writer. And so we would sit down and I would sit and play acoustic parts for her and would come up with melodies and would write songs. You know, lyrics weren't really a problem. I could always write lyrics and so could she. So we just wrote pop songs. Brett and Eve would write... And they started writing really cool songs and and then they just divvy them up through the band. But I just did not have that ability. I didn't have a musical background and I didn't understand the process. And unfortunately, I didn't have the impetus to kind of learn more either. So, I, yeah, I, I was at every recording. I was in the studio, disciplined, dressed up. We all had a thing where we, we would make sure we power dressed when we were in the studio so we didn't flop around in hoodies and and feel like we were being lazy 
We all wanted to be on top of our game, but they were the writers and they directed us. And that was that. In mid-1988, the Shantuzis were ready to unleash the second phase of their career. Their brand new single, Wanna Be Up, was released in June of 88, and this would be the song that would become their signature tune. It spent a total of 23 weeks in the ARIA Top 50 singles chart alone, and nine of those weeks in the top 10. It peaked at number six and ended up becoming the 22nd biggest song for 1988. Shantuzis had a classic on their hands. Yeah, even though it peaked slightly lower than Witch Queen, I think because it stayed in the chart for such a long time, it would have outsold Witch Queen, so I'd call it their biggest hit. Yeah, most certainly. And it did this really strange thing where it went in and out of the top 10 on three separate occasions. It would drop down, then it went back in. It really had this lease of life that just kept reigniting itself. It was amazing. And it was proof that the band could write their own hits. Let's Mm -hmm. hear a little bit of that hit and then we'll hear from Eve and Brett about writing the song. I remember everything about it. I remember we were at Eve's house, Eve's parents' house, sitting in, she had an an apartment at the back of the house or an old stable, I think it was, and I had an acoustic guitar and, I mean, it's only three or four chords. I mean, it's not like it's rocket science, but I remember writing the tune, which was really almost like a country feel. I think the reason why we had to write the song was because we'd already recorded 95% of the album. We'd already finished it, not mixed it, but everything was in the can and all the girls had sung a substantial part of the record other than Ali and only because Ali's range was quite low compared to some of the other songs were written and we hadn't transposed them and the the girls had sang them. So we had to write a song for Ali specifically in a particular register and the key was in F, which is an unusual key for me to write in. I would never write in that key. Um, It's because it's kind of hard to play. And we wrote that song specifically for her. But I remember writing it. Eve and I sat around the pool. We, uh, I, I think I had the chorus first. The chorus was written first and the chords and the bridge. And I had the chorus and the bridge and Eve came up with first verse and second verse. And I remember we just played it to ourselves a couple of times and sang it together. And I think we instinctively knew that this was a good song. But it was a country song. It felt like a country song. And it just, just a lesson to, to yourself as a writer don't get too complicated because really the song that was the most successful one out of all those songs was the simplest one and the fastest one to write. It was probably written in 20 minutes. I love that song. It's a great song and it was one of the first songs that we kind of had put things together for that when we first started recording the album and then and then it was put in full form, I guess, towards the end. So, yeah, no, I didn't realise it was going to be a hit. I think it must be the person who sang it and what they gave to it. I loved it. I thought it was a great song and I really enjoyed singing it, but I don't know if I necessarily thought it was going to be a, you know, I thought it was a really good song. I think the uh, clip was very, um, a big part of that too, because that was back in the day of like MTV, that type of thing. And we're all in very tight blue dresses that I'm sure kind of gave it a visual Sort of people liked it visually as well. And when when Ali's singing it, you know, and we do big audiences and stuff, the entire crowd sing, like 10,000 people will sing, except they do this one thing that's really annoying. They all sing, don't want to be up, don't want to be down. It's like, no, it's 
you want to be up. So it's want to be up, don't want to be down. I don't know what that is. They just want to be in some sort of weird limbo. I know, clearly. Off the back of the success of Wanna Be Up, the band's debut album called Shantuzies was released in August 1988. And that's right, it was called Shantuzies, not The Shantuzies. In the full interviews in the bonus material, you can hear us discuss whether the band are Shantuzies or The Shantuzies with Ali and Eve, if you're pedantic like me. But for now, let's hear about the final single lifted off the album, my personal favourite, Kiss and Tell, and the drama around the music video. Ellie, are you in the music video clip? I was missing from a lot of it because I was in hospital and I had to go to, I got, we were up on the. Oh, we were doing. Um, Skates' launch of his Mirage. Yeah, we were doing the opening of the Mirage and I suddenly had some dreadful pain in my stomach and everyone went, oh, you'll be fine. And I just remember, you know, rolling around in agony and we flew back to Sydney and I was rolling, still rolling around in agony. Can't believe you flew. I think finally someone went, we've got to take her to hospital. So I went to hospital And we were due to do the clip like, you know, two days later. And I was in hospital for, I don't know, almost a week. Near the end of my stay in hospital, they said, we've shot everything for the clip, but we've just got to put you in it somehow. So they stop it up my drip and they took me out of hospital. I remember saying, you've got to wash my hair. You've got to wash my hair. I've been, (laughs) you know, in a hospital bed for eight days. And makeup artist obviously did my face, did my hair. They put me in a bed and they shot it in black and white, except that, and everyone was throwing daffodils onto my bed. And uh, so I appear in a little bit for about sort of, I don't know, maybe 15 seconds, not even that. But Ali, you know what? You look the best in that clip. I always <laughs> look and you go, oh my God, she just, just come up a treat. Obviously, the best bit about that video, no offence, is the old ladies giving you filthies. Oh, my God. (laughs) They were so fabulous. Those two women, what were they like? Unbelievable. And they loved it. They absolutely loved it. And I did that take, I think, three or four or maybe five times just because, oh, I've got another one in me. I can do it better. You know, try this one. They, you know, experimented with their looks. Also included on the debut album was a track called Slightest Notion that was written by James Rain and Simon Hussey and featured Angie on lead vocals. Let's take a quick listen. That was Slightest Notion by the Shantuses, which some of you will know better as Motors Too Fast by James Rain. When the shops are all closed, don't give me train Motors Too Fast by James Rain was released in June 1988 and peaked at number six on the ARIA chart. 
But Gavin, we do need to be clear about something here, don't we? We do. Shantuzis had the song first, Mm -hmm. since it was written during those lengthy sessions for their album. So when that album came out in August, everyone thought they were covering James's hit. And it's still a bit of a sore point today. Well, he had written that for us initially, and um, Angie sang the vocal on that, and it was a beautiful, beautiful version. And it should have been, as Ali and I constantly referred to it should have been released as a single. I think James kind of handed slightest notion to me and said, you know, I think, you, you know, this will suit you and that was fine and then he took it back. <laughs> and so he did that sort of hardcore, rocky, you know, you know, James version and it's it's great, it's sexy, it's beautiful and mine's mellow and, and it is true to who, you know, and how I sing. I'd probably do a different version of it now but it suited my style then. James heard it and said... Gee, that's a that's a good song. And his record company said, "Yeah, that is a really good song, and you should record it." So, thanks very much, James. So it's funny. A lot of people, when they hear us play that, they think we're doing a cover, but in actual fact, it was well and truly ours before. Um, that that wasn't a matter of three weeks. That was a matter of several months. I think if James hadn't then gone and done slightest notion himself if he had left that with us it would have been worked in our favor okay that brings us to the end of part one of our journey through the shantuzzi's career in part two we're going to hear about how the eight members of the band really got on and the upsets and triumphs that followed their debut album it's a lot of good juicy stuff isn't it robbie you do not want to miss this you're going to love it. That's right. Make sure you check out part two of our Shantuzi's special. Bye for now. Bye, everybody. Bye.